all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Hello. <laughs> Just, just right to the point. Yes. Konnichiwa. <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Arigato. <laughs> Mr. Roboto. <Let's> see. <laughs> oh. Um, I have been watching Man on the High Castle for the past hour or so. Oh, so Japanese. Yes, I gotcha. For, for, for hello, correct? Isn't that what Konnichiwa means? It means either hello or like... No, arigato means thank you. Um, konnichiwa. Yeah. Welcome, hello. Some? Yeah, something, some sort of greeting. One of those. <laughs> I, I guess I've always been under the impression that it meant hello yeah, in Japanese. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Um, yeah, I, my Japanese isn't that good. <laughs> There's mine. And, it, and Japanese has nothing to do with th- this episode, but... <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, Just taking lessons from, uh, taking notes from Stephen. That's right, yes. Yeah, he had a good idea that we... Uh, say hello in a different language each episode, but in a language that had nothing to do with <laughs> the topic we are covering, which is a good one. Yeah, these poor people are way far away from Japan. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are indeed. Um, not really a ton of housekeeping this week. Um, Emily's live tweeting of our first episode was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, meaning our, our first up ep- last week's episode, which came out today as we're recording. <laughs> Our first of our two-part series. Yes. We enjoy Emily's live tweeting of our episodes. Yes, it is pretty funny. Um, No pressure, (laughs) Emily, but we do enjoy it. (laughs) Um, And also a shout-out. I heard from a lot of our Sarahs this week. Okay. We have a lot of nice listeners named Sarah. Sarah Q, of course, and then a couple other Sarahs thrown in there. So if you're a Sarah, thank you for listening to us, Sarah. (laughs) All of you. Thank you, Sarahs. Each of you. (laughs) Okay, so we ready to wrap this up? Yes. And this has been another episode of all the <laughs> things. Oh, oh, you meant you wanted to get this into topic. the you meant you wanted to get into the horror. Yes, 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 yes. Oh. And I have a. I um, it's not a local beer. It's a Six Point Brewery, which is Where's out. That? I know. I've heard of that. Of well, it has a statue. Yep, Brooklyn. Oh. Did we have some when we were in New York? Maybe? Not that I know no? of. That sounds familiar. Anyway. I've had Six Point before, but this was one of the dollar beers I got from Pharmacy, and it's a nine percenter. Oh. Um, so you know what to expect by the end of this show, But people. it's also like a 12-ouncer, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that still does the proper amount of damage. I didn't, but here's what's going to slow me down on it. Um, I didn't realize it's an IIPA, whatever that means. Let me try this. But yeah, careful. Oh, God, that's bitter. Yeah. Super, super bitter. That is definitely something Jason would enjoy. Yes, he would. (laughs) Our friend Jason. I am having a fine Canadian Pilsner. It says Pilsner on the bottle. I've always considered Labatt Blue to be a lager. Lager Pilsner. Is there... There must be a difference, but... I'm sure there is a slight one, but it's... Anyway, it's... Basically, it's uh, their national... (laughs) Local beer of Canada. Their national local beer of Canada, yes. (laughs) Labatt Blue. Eh? Oh, yeah. Now, some people might be confused and thing. hey, I thought that was Molson. No. 
It's a little bat. <laughs> Maybe Molson is like the west coast of Canada. Yeah, it's like the, the it's like the it's like the Coors in uh, America okay. to, to to Budweiser. There we go. In my view, anyway. <laughs> All right, so the reason we're putting off talking about our topic <laughs> is that this is part two for the 1972 Andes plane disaster, also known as Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. Last week, we covered all the background and the crash, and that's just the beginning of the story. So this mm-hmm. week, we get to... The rest of the horror that was this disaster. And I've got to say, I feel like a little bit... I mean, I've got six pages of research here, but I still feel like I I did sort of a superficial job. But part of it is because this was really miserable to research. Yeah, I'll bet. I think it's because there's like... There's a torture element to this story that is usually lacking in our disasters. Well, plus the their mere survival, the, the people who did survive, um, is really kind of the whole story. So in, in a lot of disasters, we'll cover, oh, this person survived by the... We never right. get into <laughs> the actual well, acts and what they had to go through. This is... We've never had a... A level like this that they've had to get through, you know. There's been um, the Indianapolis was maybe the the second closest. That's true. That was several days and sharks and horrible things like but that. But it's also military trained people, so they're kind of, they're going into that situation a little bit different than a bunch of Uruguayan kids on a rugby team. Right. I mean, they weren't, they weren't civilians necessarily. I mean, it's still horrible. But yeah. I think I think it's kind of like. This, this, the more I looked into this disaster, the more it felt like a crime. And I don't mean what the survivors had to do. I mean, just the level to which the torment happened. It's almost like, uh, like these people were being tortured by a serial killer or yeah, something. It's like, it's like a Saw movie. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, trigger warning. <laughs> I, I, um, For everything. Yes. I, I untrigger warning cannibalism last week, but I'm re triggering. Warning for cannibalism this week. We're going to talk, and we're we're not. You know us. We don't shy away from the de- details. So, so get your triggers ready, millennials. You, you have been warned. All right. So quick recap on October thirteenth, nineteen seventy-two, Uruguayan Air Force Flight five seventy-one crashed into the Andes Mountains along the border of Chile and Argentina. To to date in our story. Uh, 12 people died in the crash. 33 have survived for now. So. And this is pretty much right when they crossed into Chile. Chile. Yes, it's right along the border. Right along the border. But remember, Mm -hmm. the co-pilot who's piloting the plane thought they were well Mm -hmm. over the border. And that was what happened with this whole disaster. So at this point, there's the crash has taken place. Virtually everyone who had survived was injured. It was just, sure. just in fact, I say virtually just because I didn't see like a definitive list, but I imagine that nobody escaped unscathed. So at the very least, you probably had a 
bumps and bruises, uh, yeah. scrapes or whatever. So, Head yeah. trauma. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people had that. Broken bones yeah. were a big issue, including yeah. a lot of broken legs uh. because the seat slid forward. As shown yes. in Alive, yes. uh, the seats slid forward in the crash, so a lot of people's legs got crushed. Um, people got impaled with yeah. debris. Yeah. Uh, survivor Roberto Canessa, who will come up a lot in this story. He is the captain of the team, correct? Nope. No, he's not. Okay. No, he's not. Um, he recalls one person screaming, I'm blind, and then he looked over at the man and said he could see the man's brain. Oh, God. And that a piece of metal was sticking out of his stomach. Oh, so, Jesus. yeah, there, there were some really horrific injuries. Um, passenger and rugby player Nando Prado, an, played by Ethan Hawke in the film, <laughs> um, will uh, be coming up a lot in, in this uh, episode. He had a skull fracture and he was in a coma, like right away. Yes, he and was. he would not yeah, wake up right. for a few For a days. while, yeah. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> probably better that way, right? At least, at least be unconscious <laughs> through some of it. Yeah. So as you can imagine, some people were just totally losing their shit because, of course, this is horrible, um, and no shame in that. And none of us know how we react in a similarly horrific situation. Hopefully, we never will find out. But somehow, a few of the survivors who were able-bodied enough to to move around and had enough presence of mind to do so started assessing the wreckage and the situation. One of them was team captain Marcelo Perez. That's who you're thinking. Okay. Uh, yeah, and they're assessing the situation saying, okay, we're fucked. <laughs> this is fucked. Everything is fucked. No. No, I know. No, they were a lot more methodical than that. (laughs) That would have been my assessment of the situation. Right? No, he started looking through the wreckage to uncover anyone who might be buried under debris and needed assistance. And Roberto Canessa, who was 19 years old and a medical student and a rugby player, and Gustavo Zerbino, who was also a medical student... Uh, helped Perez and also started triaging the rest of the survivors. So, I mean, is there a doctor in the house? Thankfully, there were at least a couple med students. Sure. And so that, I imagine, was valuable. Do you know what triage is? Do you know what that means? Of course I do. Okay. I've seen so much ER. That's true. Don't you dare question if I know what triage is. I was leading that into making sure our audience knew what that was. Why don't you explain to our audience? It's essentially... um, Going over the wounded, it's a it's a military term. It's what medics do in the middle of a war. And in, um, in any emergency situation yes. where there's it's, mass casualties. It's going over <clears throat> it's going over the wounded and essentially deciding I think we can save him, I think we can save him, this guy, don't worry about it. Like he's that's you're assessing who you can who you can save. Yes. Who's gravely injured, yeah. who's and and in modern days and in mass casualty incidents, there are tags that yes. they give people so that they've been assessed, and like a black tag means like yeah. And no, also that's not happening. Um, and also in the aftermath of Katrina, uh, FEMA does the same thing that when they tag a house that they've gone through. Mm. They draw an X on the door. Wow. Each box in that X because there's four boxes means something else. Like casualties found. Kind of like the hazmat. Uh, diamond and also and also uh, recreated in the game Last of Us. When you whenever you mm. come across a house, it has that same marking. Huh? That would I guess that would make what, sense. One of the best games, video games ever. <laughs> we always have to work on video game of in course the we conversation. Do. And the second one should be coming out hopefully next year. I hope. <laughs> 
So they were treating whoever they could, however they could. Uh, Some people couldn't really be treated given the situation, and all anyone could do is basically just try to comfort them. I mean... What else do you do? Yeah. Um, During the night of October 13th into October 14th, Five more people died from their injuries. Sure. The most gravely injured, I would imagine. Um, so it left a total of 28 survivors. So there had been 33. Five died overnight. Those who died that night were a co-pilot, Dante Lagorara, who, as we'll recall, was basically crushed in the mm-hmm. There was not much There's hope not much, for him. Yeah. The pilot had gotten just killed immediately, but he had gotten like crushed in the cockpit. So, yeah. Um, Franz... I think it's Francisco. I put Francisco. I think it's Francisco Abal. Um, Graziella Mariana, who, if we remember, is the lady who got the last seat because of a last-minute cancellation to go to her daughter's wedding. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, And uh, let's see. Felipe Makirian? Makirian? There's a lot of Spanish names. I'm, I'm throughout this episode. I'm going to name everyone sure. who was survived, who initially survived. But also, crash. and this just came to mind. Imagine that daughter. You know, your mom's plane disappeared. It's like, horrible. What do you do? Like, do you go on with the wedding? Like, what? Wow. You know, that's dark. But I would say, I wouldn't. I, I don't, don't think, think I, I would. would either. I think I'd be too worried and yeah. too concerned and just couldn't carry that's on. Fucked up. It is really fucked up. Yeah. Um, and Julio Martinez Lamas. So those were the five people who died that first night. As for rescue attempts, uh, the Chilean Air Search and Rescue Services were notified of the missing plane within an hour of the crash. So pretty quick. Uh, And four planes searched all afternoon until it got dark. Now, Emily brought up the idea of what about the black box. From what I could tell, there wasn't one. I mean, we're talking about... uh, and I, I guess I shouldn't say there wasn't one. Let me just say I didn't see any reference to a, a cockpit voice recorder or a black box on this plane. I don't know if it was it's 1972 we're talking about. It was a, a military that, plane. Who knows when that plane was actually built? So, I mean that plane, it was a four year old plane. Oh, it was. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I wasn't sure if you'd mentioned that in the last one. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, at that time it could have, but not necessarily yeah, automatic. Or if, or if the Uruguayan Air Force didn't require it. So at any rate, that apparently yeah. didn't come into play. <laughs> that too. I mean, that's uh, it's not uniquely American, but I I think we kind of came up with that concept. I, I'm not sure who did, but at I'll any rate, have to it, uh, brush up on my black box history. There you go. Um, but. So so they had four planes search, and they searched all afternoon until it got dark, and then they really couldn't search anymore. Based on radio transmissions, they concluded the plane had come down in a very remote, highly inaccessible part of the Andes. So they called in the Andean Relief Corps, or, Corps, or the Cuerpo de Socorro Andino, or CSA. And the CSA is a volunteer search and rescue group specializing in the Andes and other difficult part, uh, difficult to reach parts of Chile. So the next day, October 14th, 11 different aircraft were looking for the plane from overhead, but, and, and three of them were spotted by the survivors and they tried to get their attention, but they couldn't. At one point they tried writing SOS on the roof of the plane in lipstick, but they didn't have enough lipstick to do it. Sure. Um, and, and it was a white plane on a white background of snow, so well, it was plus, not visible. Plus, there's not really a plane to look for anymore. 
Oh, well, all, yeah, all it's just the fuselage. All that's left is half right, of a fuselage. Right, they can't, there's no wings, there's no yeah. tail. It's just like a cylinder at this it's, point. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to trying to write that SOS message, the survivors were not taking this crash lying down. They were very proactive, and this will be a running theme. Uh, they stayed inside the debris of the fuselage for shelter. I mean, we're talking up in the mountains, snowy, cold, everything. And it was n- it was necessary, but it was certainly not comfortable to do. There were 28 people in a space that only measured about 80 square feet. It was like an 8 by 10 room size, sure. roughly, which is like 240 square meters. The benefit, the benefit of that would be body, body heat. heat. Yeah, yeah, there's there is that, but just still, just yeah, yeah, very cramped. Um, they also shoved a lot of debris at the back of the fuselage because remember the whole back of the plane came off, exposed, right? Yeah. So they basically like built a makeshift wall at the back of the plane, um, and hypothermia obviously mm-hmm. major concern. So mm-hmm. uh, now three days in, so on the sixteenth, October sixteenth, as I mentioned, Nando Parado woke up from his coma. Uh, from his head injury. Um, unfortunately for him, his 17-year-old sister, Susanna, was one of the more seriously injured, and he tried to help her and nurse her back to health, but she died, and so now there are 27 survivors. This is like practically like an and-then-there-were-none situation. It's terrible. They managed to find a little transistor radio smashed between the seats of what was left of the plane, and one survivor, Roy Harley, was kind of like a, an electronics nerd. And he fashioned like this really long antenna from an electrical cable. Uh, unfortunately, that meant that 11 days into this whole ordeal. So we're going to kind of move a little bit back and forth in the timeline. But just to say sure. 11 days in, they heard over the radio that the search and rescue efforts were called off. So they knew no one was looking for them. Um, And actually, it had been called off after just eight days. Mm -hmm. They just didn't hear about it until 11. The rescuers had concluded that there's basically just no way anybody survived and that they'd have to wait for the spring thaw to recover the bodies. So upon hearing about the called-off search, the survivors were obviously and very understandably very upset and depressed by this because it meant... There's no hope, basically. But Gustavo Nikolic addressed the group and said, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio they've called off the search. And people were super angry, obviously. And um, Carlos Paez Rodriguez, also known as Carlito, I think, um, yelled at him like, why the hell is that good news? To which Nikolic said, because it means that we're going to get out of here on our own. So that's just to show a little bit of the determination of and well somebody has to set the tone well yeah there's at that that point because everybody's realizing that they're fucked and he's like hey it's up to us now at least at least you know that for sure because you've already heard that instead of sitting around waiting oh i hope we'll see that that's gone right and um what no spoiler alert spoiler alert what we'll learn about the survivors is there was a lot of young men Um, um, aboard the plane, and if anyone had the best chances of survival in a situation like this, it's young men. Um, More body mass. I was going to say, and they're athletes, too. Yep, more body mass and better shape, and yeah, so. All right. 
So it's clear from this little exchange that even after 11 days of extreme weather conditions, people dying around them, the shock of the whole event, this group of now 27 survivors were not ready to give up. They were still fighting. And they started getting really, really resourceful. One survivor, Fido Strouch, was particularly resourceful. He was known as, like, the inventor of the group and was able to make all sorts of little contraptions from the debris. He made a snow melter from sheet metal so that they could have drinking water that, like, dripped into empty wine bottles. He created makeshift sunglasses to help prevent snow blindness, which is basically, like, described as a sunburn of the eyes, sure. which just sounds horrible. Um, it's supposedly it feels like sand in your eyes. It would yeah. just be awful. Um, and he, he made these sunglasses using like uh, visors from the pilot's uh, cockpit, wire, and a bra strap. <laughs> so very inventive. They used wool seat covers for blankets and seat cushions for snowshoes. And the captain of the rugby team, Marcelo Perez, who you mentioned before, or was were asking about, like, oh, wasn't he the... Marcelo Perez assumed a natural leadership position, which makes sense, since he was the captain of the team. He was used the to role he's charge. already serving. Yeah. Exactly. Unfortunately, in spite of all their efforts and ingenuity, there was a major problem developing. They didn't have much food. Specifically... The sustenance on board consisted of a few bottles of wine, a can of mussels, three small jars of jam, a can of almonds, a few dates, some candy, eight chocolate bars, and some prunes. So, not much for 27 people is a lot of people. It's a lot to ration. Uh, Yes, exactly. The one good thing is, though, even if this guy hadn't made this snow-melting machine... they have a they have a uh, plentiful a plentiful supply, supply of, of water, yeah. so that's not going to be a problem. Right, dehydration was not the worst of their problems. Yeah. That 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 is true. Because being going without water will kill you faster than going yes, without, without. You can food. dehydrate a lot faster than yeah. you can starve. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So, yes, they had to seriously ration the food. Um, Nando Parado said at one point in a three-day period, he ate one chocolate-covered peanut. Like, that was his ration, which is horrific. And the food ended up 27 people, even with, like, what sounded like, oh, that's not nothing, but 27 people. The food ran out in a week. So... And because of where they were in the middle of these snowy mountains, it's not like they could, like, live off the land or hunt. There were no animals around, no vegetation. Like, nothing. Uh, And they did try. They're like, well, some of this more organic matter that's making up some of the plane, like the cotton and the seat cushions, the leather. Like, can we eat that? And they tried. And it didn't work so well. They got sick from it, um, partially because it's inedible shit, and partially because of like it's still treated with chemicals sure. that aren't oh, meant God, for human yeah. consumption. So, so we're getting to the part that we we've been waiting for here. Um, but we're gonna take a quick time out and talk a little bit about starvation. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about let's, starvation. Let's talk about starvation. Yeah, kids. it's a great Schoolhouse Rock episode. 
Um, so I, I was thinking of it like at the end of a, a G.I. Joe episode when I was a little kid. Let's talk about starvation. Did they have like little lessons? Oh, to yeah. Learn? At the end of G.I. Joe? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And, uh, was it like about, let's talk about the, telling the truth? And... Something like that, but the tagline was, and knowing is half the battle. <laughs> G.I. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it's cute. Um, so. I am someone who gets hangry if I haven't eaten in, like, (laughs) three hours. So this whole situation gives me, like, the worst feeling. It's making you feel hangry just reading it, isn't it? It's awful. It's awful, awful, awful. So starvation is is awful. I mean, there's a reason they use it as a torture device. Sure. Like, yeah. It's... mm -hmm. So here's what's happening biologically. Very simplistically in a nutshell. Uh, So when you eat, your body gets glucose energy from the food you eat. So if there's no food coming in, the body goes to its first backup plan, which is going after its fat reserves and breaking that down. But because of how the liver is able to metabolize fat, it still needs something extra. So it starts metabolizing or starts breaking down protein in the body, which is basically your muscles. And then your fat stores reduce, so then it's more and more muscle that the body is breaking down. Your body's basically trying to keep your brain going. Sure. And feed your brain. So it's eating everything around it. It's like a self-consuming, which is really... Ugh, it's, they kind of explain... They, the only time I've really <clears throat> seen this somewhat explained um, was in the, the miniseries Band of Brothers... Mm-hmm. where um, the company that this television series is following, they come across one of the um, Nazi camps, the, mm-hmm. well, the concentration, concentration camps. camps. Mm. And their immediate thought is to give them all their rations and MREs uh, and feed them. Mm-hmm. And then a health minister comes, yeah. finally gets to the scene. He's like, you can't. You have to be careful. He's like, these people are starving. He's like, everything they eat has to be monitored. He's like, you can't just give them food. Right. You can't, they can't They're, gorge. Their body is... Breaking down, right. essentially. Right. So. And, and what happens eventually, because the body's eating muscle, it, organs are muscle, yeah. too, you oh, know? Yeah. And and so it starts consuming its own, like, internal organs. The body organs. essentially starts eating itself from yeah. the inside. That's <clears throat> kind of the best way to explain yeah. it. Yeah. And so what it, usually people who die from starvation, they die from heart failure because there's just not, like, the heart muscle is too weakened or from electrolyte imbalances just because of the lack of nutrition and that that causes all sorts of problems in the body. So basically the body is just put so horribly out of whack. Mm-hmm. So so this next section I entitled That's When the Cannibalism Started, which we mentioned last week. So, yeah. All right, we're going to... Our, our first foray into... Uh... Hopefully our last. I I can't think of another one, another disaster with this. But anyway, so the food ran out in a week. So 10 days in, they're going on three days with zero food. Uh, And they had, at this point, what I imagine was a pretty awful and grim conversation, especially considering the reality of their circumstances. They, They talked, the survivors talked, about the idea of having to resort to eating each other if necessary. And something that I thought was actually really honorable, they all agreed that if they died, they gave permission to the others to eat them. Um, I think that that was really noble, really realistic, and very practical. 
Not that I want to keep bringing up the movie, and I don't know if this <laughs> happened in real life or not, but the one guy after they make this pack says, he says, as long as you promise to clean your plates. Oh, like make it worth it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like if yeah. you're going to eat me, eat, eat Go all ahead, of me. yeah. Yeah, make good use of me. Yeah. Um, so I, I personally think that that's... I would feel this, I would feel exactly that way. Yeah. Like go for it. Go yes. for it. As I said, the, I'm grass fed. The, the, <laughs> the people were about to eat didn't get to get in on that pact, unfortunately. Um, we'll, so we'll I do that I do think it is honorable to be like, okay, if we're gonna do this and if we die, go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. I, I just think That's the only use I'll have at that right, point. Right. Um, yeah. But there are a couple important things to remember here. One is most of these survivors were Catholic. Mm-hmm. Now, traditional Catholicism is against abortion, euthanasia, the death penalty, cloning, even stem cell research. <laughs> even sex with young boys. Oh, wait. Sorry, I had to get that in. Not going to say anything. So <laughs> humans are viewed by the Catholic Church to be made in the image of God. That's the idea. Um so the idea of destroying the human body and consuming it was not only upsetting to the, the survivors who were Catholic, but um, it was specifically contra- contrary to their religious beliefs. Because it's one thing to say, look, if I die, you can eat me. It's another to think about eating somebody else. Like, sure. that's, that's another... Yeah. Yeah. Um, Roberto Canessa said... Quote, for a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. End quote. Mm. So um, now some of the survivors actually found a little bit of comfort and rationalization in the Catholic concept of transubstantiation, which um, so that your soul. No, no. So communion, okay, which is practiced in in many Christian religions, um, but in Catholicism. Yeah. And it was attempted to be practiced at my. Uh, my oh, your sister's wedding. wedding. We've told that story. <laughs> we've told that story. It's a great one, but we've told it. Yes, your poor mom was the only one. <laughs> Didn't know that no one else was coming up behind her. Um, anyway, uh, so and it's not just practiced in Catholicism. We used to practice this in the evangelical church too when I was in it. But um, it's practiced in the Episcopalian. Yes, too. yes, yeah. in most Christian yeah. um, denominations, it's um, you eat bread and drink wine or crackers and grape juice. Like there's all sorts of uh, analogs, but uh, it, it's meant it's it based off the Last Supper. Jesus in the Bible, you know, Jesus breaks bread and gives it to the disciples and said, this is my body, eat this in remembrance of me. Then gives them wine and says, this is my blood, drink this in remembrance of me. So it's like a symbolic, um, like I'm giving myself to you. So do this in remembrance of me. So that's why uh, communion is uh, still practiced. It's meant to be a remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus. So that's the idea. Well, one big thing that um, separates Catholicism from like Protestantism is that Catholics, well, traditional Catholicism holds that when you eat bread during communion, it literally, not just figuratively, literally turns into the body of Christ as you consume it. Same with the wine, that it turns into blood, Jesus's blood specifically, as you consume it. That's called transubstantiation. Um, 
non-Catholics usually regard it as far more symbolic and not literal. But that's kind of one of the hallmarks of traditional Catholicism is that it's taken very literally. So you can kind of see where the people who are religious and Catholic were like, well, you know, we're eating Jesus, so maybe this is kind of like a type of communion. So maybe we should eat Steve. Right. Well. um, Or Stefan. I don't think there's anybody (laughs) named Steve on this flight. (laughs) Maybe not. Um, Stefano. Sounds like uh, a fine Uruguayan boy. (laughs) So they also used... um, Another New Testament verse for comfort, where Jesus says, uh, no man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So the idea of, again, the sacrifice and all. Um, and I say if that helped them deal with it, then go for whatever it. Whatever you got to do. Yeah. Yes, literally, whatever. Yeah. Whatever gets you through it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. whatever gets you through the <laughs> night, it's yeah. all right. Yeah. Now, here was the other thing. So that was one complication, their religion. But most of the people on this flight knew each other. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's so that's. Uh, I mean, that's like the aggravating. It, it's horrible anyway. And then you have to like, like this whole story. I told you this. Like this whole story feels like insult to injury. Oh, insult yeah. to injury. Like, insult to what, injury. What can we deal with next? Yeah, it's. It feels like like they're really being screwed over. So. So yeah, they were they were talking about and and having to grapple with the reality of literally eating the skin and the muscle and eventually the internal organs of people they knew, people they loved, people they played rugby with, people they cared about. And that is just a mind fuck and a half that I can't even imagine. Um and but but you know what? Here's the thing: whether you think we're created in the image of God or evolved over millions of years, there's only there's one thing that is rarely contested: that we have a, an immense will to survive. Oh so, yes, and uh, and adaptability too. Yes, human so, beings are very adaptable. So if we have to do something that's repulsive to us to survive, mm. we might just have to do it. Pretty much all animals have that will, and that's what we are. Yeah, yeah, we um, are. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, you can't ever say like I don't know what I. I think I think the majority of us in any rough situation, especially like this, you just do what you have to do. I think that's what it comes down to. Plus, I mean, even with like the rationalization they're needing to do, like. Your mind with three days with no food mm, is already starting to go a little awry. Yeah, it is screwing it with itself. Add at on that top point. of what you've already been through at this point. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, they were probably the, the, men, the mental hurdle was probably as much as the physical one to get through. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and they were probably dealing with so much PTSD. It's not even funny. And it's or maybe just, not yet. Maybe they're. Maybe they're strictly in, in the shock, moment. Just still in. I think probably for most of these people, the PTSD came later. Well, I think. well it definitely yeah. happened later yeah. for sure. I, but whether it was happening at this I, time, I have a sense that most of these people are just living in the moment and just just doing what they have to. Mm-hmm. It's like survival mode, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the survivors realized they were reaching a point where they would just start to become so weak they couldn't survive and they just couldn't do anything. And so they collectively decided that they would um, begin to eat the victims of the crash. So they, I, I'm, I am shocked and incredibly impressed at how, like, 
It probably didn't feel super rational at the time, but their actions were actually very rational. They discussed everything. They rationalized it when they needed to. Um, And then they made a really intelligent decision of, well, neither of us know or none of us know the pilot or the co-pilot. So if we have to start eating people, like, that makes the most sense. We'll start with the two people who are responsible for us being well, in this it's not situation. Well, I don't think it was the responsibility, because no, nobody knew at that point what happened. Right. It, it was more, we just don't know them. Yeah. So it was the stranger aspect. So um, so Roberto Canessa took a leadership role in being the first person to actually eat the human meat. So he broke the plane's windshield, took a shard of the glass, and cut... A very, very small part of the skin and and meat off of one of the pilots and ate it. Uh, The others started to very reluctantly follow suit. It did take longer for some than others. Some held out longer than others. Um, Some some people actually, actually one person for sure literally just refused. And some people couldn't keep it down because it was just mentally (laughs) too much of a hurdle to get over. The last survivors to come around and partake were Javiera, sorry, Javier and Liliana uh, Methol. And at this point, Liliana was the only female survivor. The rest were all male. There weren't many women on board. She was the only woman still surviving. She was particularly religious, and the communion argument was kind of what brought her around. So, uh, they dried the meat in the sun to make it easier to eat, and. Um, they initially were just going to eat the skin, the muscle, the fat, because the whole thing was just incredibly disturbing and revolting. But unfortunately, that ran out on the pilots, so they moved on to the internal organs and eventually the brains. Uh, even with this new sustenance, they knew there was only so long that they could go without facing starvation again. I mean, we're still, again, talking about 27 people. This is not five people. Um and as uh, definitely trigger warning from what I for what I'm about to say, like if you think about like roasting a pig, uh, that's not gonna keep 27 people fed for you know days and days on end. No, yeah. no. So a human isn't tons more than a giant pig as far as weight goes. So yeah. So at this point, like they're having to resort to eating people. But they know it's not going to last forever. Like, they're going to have to get out of this. And then, to make matters worse, because that's all this whole story is, on October 29th, 16 days into this horrible nightmare, because they were in the mountains, an avalanche occurred where they were while they were sleeping in the middle of the night. The snow buried what remained of the plane and killed eight more people. Killed Enrique Platero, Gustavo Nikolic, the med student, one of the med students who had helped out initially and rallied everyone when they heard that, you know, no one was looking for them anymore. Daniel Maspons, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, best name ever, but poor guy. Carlos Roque, Liliana Methal, the last woman Mm. surviving. Um, and rugby team captain Marcelo Perez, the de facto leader of the whole group. So now there were 19 survivors. 
Um, Speaking of the survivors, they didn't make it out of the avalanche unscathed. They were trapped inside the fuselage of the plane, buried under about a meter, like three feet of snow. Nando Parado poked a hole in the roof with a metal pole just to, like, get oxygen in because they realized that the air was going to run out. And over the next couple days, they managed to dig their way out of the plane. Um, And, like, they, they dug a tunnel only to find, again, hello, insult, a blizzard going on. So they couldn't go outside. They had to stay back inside the plane um, for three days because they were trapped inside. They literally had no choice but to eat the flesh of the people who died in the avalanche. Mm-hmm. So um, that was the first time they had to eat people they knew because they had just eaten the the pilots before. So, so things were pretty clearly fucking awful at this point. Um, they knew... For sure, no one was looking for them. The weather conditions were bad. Uh, They were literally having to eat dead people. And it started becoming pretty clear that if they wanted to get out of this situation alive, they would need to figure out their own way to get help. Before he died, the co-pilot, La Gurara, told the rest of the survivors that they had passed Curico. Remember, that was his... um, Because he was flying blind, that was his misinterpretation mm-hmm. of where they were. They actually were in the middle of the Andes. So here's something that like fucked with my head initially for a second because we're in the northern hemisphere, but it was October and the southern hemisphere, so it was the spring, not yeah. the fall. Yeah. So they were actually coming upon the spring fall. I was like, oh God, it's October and they were having to wait for the spring fall. It's going to be like six months. No, this was... This was already close to their spring. So now this is obviously very, very, very good news for our intrepid survivors. The snow that buried the plane in the avalanche started melting. Um, And some of the survivors struck out on like smaller expeditions to just the nearby area. But I mean, the deck was really stacked against them no matter what. They were getting altitude sickness. They were malnourished, obviously. And the nights still got really, really cold, so they couldn't go very far. They had to, like, stay in the shelter of the plane. In early November, they came to the conclusion that they just had to send a few of them. Like, a few of them would just have to go out uh, to try and find help, period. And they decided that Roberto Canessa, Nando Parado, and Num. Uh, Numa, Numa Turcati and Antonio Vizintin would be the expedition group. So the four of them rested up. Uh, they waited about a week to um, uh, let the temperatures warm up a little bit. The four of them were given a little more food than the others to kind of try and to give them a little more them energy. Up a little bit before yep. they go. Yep. Yeah. They were given the warmest clothing and, and just kind of given a little preferential treatment because they knew that they were well, going to face some harsh conditions. They are, they're basically in a situation at that point where they have no choice but to find something. Someone, yeah. a place, yeah. you know, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So they, they struck out on their little expedition, and as for navigation, it was basically as bad as flying blind. 
They were thinking of heading west to get to Chile based on the idea that they had passed Curico. Uh, but there was a big mountain to their west, so they decided to head east instead. So they were heading back towards the Argentinian side uh, of the mountains, and they started out on November 15th. After a few hours of walking, they came across the tail of their own airplane. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was only about a mile away the whole time. Now, it took them three hours to trek a mile because of the conditions, obviously. Um, Now, the plus side to this was that they found inside the tail of the plane what probably felt like a treasure trove. They found more luggage. Yes, yes. They found a box of chocolates, some meat patties, a bottle of rum. That would have been just like Fuck yeah. Uh, Cigarettes. (laughs) Definitely tearing into that and and smoking all of those. Yes. Probably at once. (laughs) Clothing, some medicine, and a two-way radio. Uh, That's a pretty huge find when you're in a situation like this. Yes. That is like finding a fucking treasure. Yes. And um, that night they camped inside the plane's tail. Um, to rest. And the next day, they kept heading east and camped outside at night. Unfortunately, the cold nearly killed them. Like, they couldn't... They camped out in the tail, so that worked out for them. But then the next day, like, they were just out in the middle of nowhere. So so they decided they had to go back to the tail of the plane. They were going to gather all the batteries that they could from it and go back to the rest of the plane and the rest of the survivors. Um... And charge the radio, because the radio was out of power, and try to call Santiago for help. So, the plan was a good one. But, unfortunately for them, the batteries they found were super big and heavy. Like, 53 pounds heavy, to 24 kilograms. And they would have to carry them uphill to get back to the rest of the plane. And so, they came up with a, a much better system, uh, which was to go back to the fuselage, remove the radio system. And bring it yes, to the battery. To, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I, I'm too dumb to have thought of that, especially <laughs> especially in that well, situation. Right? But what else, but what else are you going to do? They're like, it'll only take us... And at that point, they probably had a good idea of it. They're like, it'll only take us three hours to get back to the our wreckage. Right. Ten minutes to get the radio out, and we'll just bring it back. Yeah. And then we can, because people are waiting for them to come back. Yeah, well, yeah. So now they can come back and be like, look, we're going to go back out, but in case anything happens, the tail is only a mile away. Right, And we have all this stuff over there. I imagine tracks leading to it, maybe, so yeah. Well, not once it snowed. Well, I guess, yeah. But but at least they have a location of the tail and Mm -hmm. a a new game plan. Yeah. So that's that's a pretty successful first mission out. Yes, yes. Um, they brought back with them, well, so they went back to the, the fuselage, explained what was going on, and then they brought back with them Roy Harley, the guy who made the antenna. Oh, okay, yeah. Because he was an electronic speak, so. Can, can do. Sure. Now, he did his best to try and charge the radio system, but the problem was, okay, I didn't look into this too much because this thing is already going to go super long, but, um... Uh, nobody realized that, like, the radio used AC power, but the batteries were DC or something like that. Yeah, anyway, that there was difference. there was yeah. zero chance that they were going to be able to recharge the radio. So, so, so it didn't work. They couldn't get it to work. They were never going to get it to work. So they trudged back to the fuselage yet again through another fucking blizzard. Of course. Why not? 
At that point, Roy Harley literally apparently like laid down and was like, okay, I'm done. Just just leave me to die. And uh, Nando Parado apparently like dragged him and was like, no, you're not giving up and, and forced him to come back to the, the fuselage. So. so on November 15th, Arturo uh, Noguera yeah, and Rafael um, Echevarren both died from gangrene. Yeah. Infected wounds. Yeah. So now we're down to 17 survivors. They didn't give up. They had come to realize their only way out was to travel to the west, because the east didn't work out, over the mountains. But the biggest concern was that as they were hiking, they would have to camp out and rest at night, but it was just way too cold. They couldn't, it, like, even though it was technically like spring thaw or it's whatever, it's still, still you're still at in night. the fucking mountains. You're, yes. You're a, a mile above fucking sea level. Right. More than that, actually. Right. But, uh, and they wouldn't have. Um, any sh- the shelter of the plane or anything. It's not like today where you know you can have on like all your North Face gear and all that shit. They've got they've got what they got. Yes, and and even clothing technology this time like there's there's nothing. No, no. People would be like, oh, put on a pair of long johns, you'll be fine. Right. <laughs> you know. Fuck. So very inventively, they s- literally sewed together a big quilted sleeping bag using um, materials from the plane that was big enough for three people to sleep in and stay warm by insulation of the quilt plus their body. Plus their body heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, on December eleventh, so sixty days after the crash. Two months they're having to do all this shit. Um, Numa Turkati died. Uh, he had he actually died of starvation. Oh. He refused to eat any oh. of the the victims, so he died weighing fifty five pounds, oh, yeah, which is not Ugh. any weight that a human male that an should adult ever weigh. male yeah. should weigh. No, yeah. If your twelve-year-old weighed fifty-five pounds, that'd be concerning. Maybe, much, yeah, 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 right, much right. Less than an adult male, right? Um, I mean, uh, he absolutely had the right to make whatever choice he wanted to. Sure, you know, and you can't. And he knew the consequences yep, of yep. such choice. And so, so that that's what happened. I, um, I mean, that's uh, that's pretty brave as well. I mean, yeah. it really is. Yeah, he stuck he, to his guns. He knew yeah. the consequences of his actions, and yeah, he did did it anyway. Mm-hmm. So this left the survivor count now down to 16. Our final 16. Oh, that's right. I, yeah. I was like, don't give it away, but we, we already, already talked did. about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, at this, so this is it, everybody. Wow. Uh, yeah. God, okay. So, so at, at this least there's point, no more death. Yeah. At this point, Nando Parado was ready and determined. He was like, we are getting help now, period. End of discussion. Um, everyone else was like, okay, cool, but no one really wanted to join him in his yeah, endeavor. Then I, I can join. Can't we, blame him. <laughs> we, we made you a quilt. Right? <laughs> it's supposed to be for three people. You can have it for yourself. He eventually convinced Roberto Canessa and Antonio Vizintin to come with him. And so, on December 12th, 61 days after the crash, the three men set out with their giant sleeping bag and three days' worth of meat, which is what they thought they would need, um, based on La Gurara's uh, approximation of where they were. So they thought it was going to be sufficient. Again, obviously, that was misinformation. 
Also, sometime around this point, it was a little tricky to figure out where in the timeline this happened, but the transistor radio did offer a glimmer of hope. They heard from the Uruguayan Air Force again. Like, oh, over the, that they're going to start looking yes. again. Yes. Yeah, yes. So there was right. some hope. Now, these three guys who set out were tough motherfuckers. They had no gear, no mountain climbing experience, nothing. And they were horribly malnourished and Not, not even an under armor shirt. No. <laughs> Um, so they trudged forward over very steep mountains. The sleeping bag worked, so that their idea worked, although it was pretty terrifying at times. So in what Roberto called the worst night of his life, the first night of their expedition. <laughs> like, oh, oh. this is the after everything you've been through. Like, well, listen this to this. is the worst listen night. Listen to this. Oh, my God. They had a hard time finding a place to set the sleeping bag where they could all three lay down. Um, so the place they found was a rock ledge with like an abyss of a cliff on the other side. So they basically like slept in complete fear that they were just gonna like if plummet. Anybody, if anybody gets like restless leg syndrome, right? And, like, goes to get up, they're fucking falling <laughs> off a mountain. Oh fuck! The climb. This I found astounding. The climb was so slow. Like it took the because it was so rough. It, and they have nothing. No, they have their no. They have their hands. They have their hands and their feet. That's and all they got. Very few, very crude tools. And I don't know if anybody's ever been like on a mountain at all, but that that rock is jagged as fuck. Mm-hmm. Like that. That's stuff that will cut up your hands, feet. Oh. So this is how slow they were going. The rest of the survivors could still see them for three days. Like, oh, really? Yes. Okay. They, they were watching them like, oh, there they are. Uh, okay, day two, there they progress. are. Progress. Yeah, because that's how slow the going it was. Yeah. On, <laughs> when I woke up today, I could barely see them. Now I can almost not barely see them at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're making progress. Look. Like they're sleeping on the side of a mountain. <laughs> on the third day... Roberto tried to convince Nando, hey, look, I think I see a road to the east. Let's head that way. Um, But Nando said no, and they argued. Um, And Roberto ended up staying behind while Nando and Antonio kept going. So Nando at this point was basically like a man obsessed. He was single-minded on we are getting out of this place. We're getting help. He was convinced at that point that he was going to find help or die trying. So that morning on the third day of their trek, uh, he and Antonio reached a giant mountain wall over 300 feet or 100 (sighs) meters tall. Now, Parado, again, no mountain climbing experience, scrappy guy, determined as fuck, he managed to climb the entire wall. I mean, it was described as nearly vertical. So uh, he was like, I know if we just get to the other side, like, and look over this mountain, we'll see the Chilean countryside, just like our, you know, the pilot was telling us and everything. So he climbs this wall, super, super determined. He looks over it, and there's miles and miles of mountains on the other side, just as snowy and icy as where they came from. So that must have been just like the most demoralizing. <laughs> Speaking of insult to injury. Jesus Christ. Like how much can you? <laughs> Holy fuck. So Nando and Antonio joined Roberto again. 
And since the hike was going to take way longer than they thought, at this point they're already through their three days of provisions. Um, <laughs> Plus, people at the original crash site, no, I still see them. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> The one guy was alone for a little bit. Here's the other two. They don't look so happy. They're not moving with a looks like a, Looks like one of them just uh, climbed a 300-foot tall vertical ice wall. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So Antonio went back to the crash site to fetch food. Like, okay, we need some more provisions. Now... This bit was a little murky, but it appears that Nando and Roberto, like, decided to climb climb another nearby mountain summit, but it was just the two of them. And I don't know if this was, like, that Antonio knew this, or they just decided to go for it. I'm not not positive. It was, well, they already know what's what's awaiting them going the direction they were going, going and that's that's completely fucked. So they they climbed another nearby mountain summit, and again, a bunch more mountains. Jesus. But farther on the horizon to the west, they did spot a couple of mountain peaks without snow. Oh, okay. And a nearby valley. And Nando was like, this is it. I'm 100% sure. If this we can, is ha- if if we we can, can make, make it, it there, yep. then we're, yep. we're home safe. Yep. So he, he said this to Roberto, and Roberto said, quote, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Oh, sorry, that was Nando. Damn it, that was so, so dramatic. Anyway, that's what Nando said. Okay. He's like, uh, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. He was like, I'm going to I'm I'm, take control yeah. here, you know. And Roberto agreed and said, quote, we have been through so much. Now let's go die together. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a, that's a like, super almost like, badass Almost line. like, please kill me at this point. Like, just, I, yeah. I, like, I yep, can't take like, it sure, anymore. Sure, let's just, <laughs> let's just, let's go. So, Nando and Roberto went for it. They hiked for several more days. Jesus. I think it was eventually ten days oh they, they were out there. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And eventually, they reached the valley that they saw at the top of the mountain. Uh, and there was a river there, and they followed it. It was the Rio San Jose, and they found what's known as the snow line, which is where the snow starts disappearing. Nine days, okay, so nine days into their hike, it was a total of ten days overall, they saw some cows, which must have just been like, shit, where there's cows, there's there's people. Yep, so they stopped that night by the river, super weak, almost couldn't carry on. And then Roberto looked across the river, and there were people there. Oh, my God. And can, you, can you imagine that? Uh, no. Like, it's just... And so this next part is kind of super dramatic, also a little bit funny. The Like, the way... Like, it's across the river, like, we can barely move. Also, I'm I'm taking on like the perspective of the other people. Mm. Obviously, everybody in this area knows that this plane crash has happened. I would th- I would think so. Well, I mean, we're talking really remote areas. Yes. I don't know. But no, but still, I mean. But it, let's get to the, but, this part. But anyway, yeah. So imagine being like coming across one of the, well, the no, people that. Well, no. But here's the thing. Okay. Here's the okay. thing. Nando wrote a note on a piece of paper. They couldn't yell far enough they couldn't um go to cross the river um so he wrote a note and tied it to a rock 
and threw it at the guy across the river. It read in Spanish, but this is a translation, quote, I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane, there are still 14 injured people. We've, we have to get out from here quickly, and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? SOS. Clearly, okay. He was. It was a bit rambling. Yeah, but that was probably because he was kind of not there anymore. A little bit, I understandably so. So, um, this yeah, this was clearly a note written by someone who's pretty desperate. So, across the river, uh, a little guy named Sergio Catalan uh, found the note that they threw to him on the rock. And he picked it up, he read the note, and he, like, gave him a high sign from the other side of the river, like, I gotcha, I see you. Um, But they were still in a very remote area of the Andes, so for Sergio to go get help, he had to ride his horse 10 hours. Oh, my God. Yes, to fetch for help. Um, Word was eventually sent to the army in San Fernando, Chile, who contacted the army in Santiago. In the meantime, thankfully, they went and fetched Nando and Roberto and took them to safety, feeding them, letting them rest. They're right over there. I can see them still, (laughs) right on the other side of the river. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. What's up? (laughs) So in those 10 days, Nando and Roberto had hiked about 59 kilometers or 37 miles. In mountains. On fumes, yes. Holy fuck. Mm -hmm. This is a picture of Sergio Catalan, Nando, and Roberto. Oh, wow. And we'll get to that in a second. Oh, God. On December 22nd, 1972, 72 days after the plane crashed, 72 days, Nando and Roberto led rescuers to the crash site. Initially, because of the altitude and weight limits of the rescue helicopters, it's like the final insult. They could only take seven of their survivors, oh, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it must have been real fun trying to figure out who was going to get to go and who was going to have to stay. Sure. Because they had to spend the one last night there. They did have four rescuers stay with them. So, like, sure. they were getting sustenance, they were getting medical treatment, whatever. And they were rescued, like, first thing the next morning. So, all of the survivors were taken to hospitals in Santiago, Chile. There was so much screwed up with them. Like, they obviously were malnourished. They had broken bones still, altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, scurvy, you name it. They'd just been through so much shit. This is a picture of them when they were found. It, looks like, uh, found. it looks like that group of people have all of those things. Yes. So, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Now, so just fucking just straight grizzled at, yeah. this, at this point. Yeah. They're still managing a smile, which mm-hmm. is pretty impressive. Now, initially, the survivors did not reveal that they had been forced to resort to cannibalism for survival. Um, Honorably, they did plan to make the information public, but they had discussed it, and they they were like, we want to talk with our families about this whole thing first. We don't want them to hear it from the media, and, like, we need to process this shit first. Um... But, unfortunately for them, that plan didn't work. 
by the time the last survivors were rescued, the reports had leaked and it had made for some very eye-grabbing headlines in newspapers. Members of the CSA, remember that Andean Relief Corps? Mm Mm-hmm had taken pictures of some of the partially eaten victims um, or remains. So, yeah, the pictures were run in the newspaper. Um, And then, of course, the initial rumors were that the survivors had killed people to eat them, you know. So on December 28th, five days after after the last of them were rescued, they had to hold a press conference. At their and they held it at their alma mater, Stella Maris College. Talk, talk about like the final insult, kind yeah. of. Just kind yeah, yeah. In Montevideo, Uruguay, where where um, the rugby team was all, uh, um, alumni of, and their spokesperson Alfredo Delgado spoke for them, telling the whole, the real story of of what had happened. On January eighteenth, nineteen seventy three, twelve workers and a priest went back to the crash site. They dug a grave near the crash site and buried the victims. Fifteen of them were mostly skeletons because they had mm-hmm. to they had to eat them and the rest had not been touched. Family members were not allowed to go to the site. The workers built a stone altar with an iron cross and placed a plaque that read, El mundo a sus hermanos uruguayos será o Dios de ti. Or the word, the world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O oh God, to you. They then covered the plane wreckage in gasoline and mm. burned it. The 16 survivors, in maybe their biggest feat of survival, carried on with their lives. Um, most went on to marry, have kids, have successful careers. Most of them stayed in Uruguay. The 16 survivors were. Um, the rugby players Gustavo Zerbino, Carlos Paez Rodriguez, Roberto Canessa, Nando Parado, Antonio Vizintin, and Roy Harley. And then the other survivors were Jose Pedro Algorta, Alfredo Delgado, Daniel Fernandez, Roberto Francois, Jose Inquiarte, Alvaro Manjino, Ramon Sabea, Javier Mithol, Adolfo Strauch, and Eduardo Strauch. (laughs) Tried my best there. It's pretty good. The 16 survivors are still very close to each other, and they have a reunion every year. Okay. Most believed. Yeah. Most believed they had been delivered from the crash by God Himself. Roberto Canessa said, quote, I think he let us get out, meaning God, end quote. No, end quote, (laughs) meaning God. (laughs) Carlos Paez Rodriguez said, quote, the people were the miracle that they were able to adapt, end quote. Yeah. And that was the story. I just startled the cat again. Yeah. (laughs) Was the story of the 1972 (sighs) Andes Plain Disaster. Otherwise known as Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. The, the, uh, yeah, that's a rough one. That was so depressing. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't want to keep pestering about it, but here's the last thing I will say. It's the movie, now that I know the story story, mm-hmm. the movie, like I said, probably took some liberties with things people said. But for the most part, yeah, like got everything right. You know, so it's... Um, I like I cannot like I was reading um, it was either National Geographic or something some professional hikers a couple years ago 
retrace their steps with oh. modern gear, and they were like, I have no fucking clue how these people did this with nothing. Nothing, yeah. You know, they're like, that's just... They're like, that's that's a will to survive. They're like, they don't even understand. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say nothing but the will to survive, mm-hmm. and that's what really... Well, or it depends on who you talk to. Like Nando is saying, it's because of God. Other people are like, well, it's because the will to survive. Hey, who and, really cares at that, that point? That's, if you're in that situation, fucking whatever gets you through it. Absolutely. And it's just, it's astonishing. And I... Uh, it's just... Uh, there was enough information to easily drag this out to a third part, but I was like, I'm done with this. Like, this is so depressing and so awful, and these poor people, and it it just, the whole situation, it was like, how can we fuck with them more? Hey, let's have an avalanche, you know? Some of them are still alive. Throw another, yeah, throw another blizzard at them. What, Whatever. It's it's yeah. almost like a comedy of errors, but it's not funny at all. It's just awful. Yeah. It's a comedy of awfulness. Yeah. An awfulness of errors. I don't know. It's just terrible. Yeah. That was pretty uh, pretty grim. Okay. So that's the only cannibalism story I know of. And it see, that's the thing. Is like... I know of another one. I just listened to it. An, another survival cannibalism yeah. story? Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, it, was, it was the last podcast, but... Oh, the Donner Party, yeah, Mm -hmm. of course, yes. They even ate their own shoes and clothes. Well, they tried eating the (laughs) seats and stuff of the plane, yeah. But we're going to have to do, like, another Centralia next week or something. Something, (laughs) yes. Let's find the death of another town, (laughs) just not people. (laughs) Or just, like, a a project gone awry. Yeah, something. (laughs) Maybe we can can cover Enron. That was a disaster. You know what? I mean, the... that caused people's deaths, too. Mm. Um, if you want to talk about, like, suicide so. yeah. and stuff like that, and, yeah. But it was crime-based. It was, yes. Enron was a crime. It was certainly not a fucking accident. No. <laughs> Nothing accidental about Enron. <laughs> no. So, but, uh, but yeah, that, that was, you know, like... I don't know, last week's episode when we were covering up to the crash, it felt very much like our usual mm-hmm. episodes. And then I started, like, writing all this stuff about the cannibalism and everything, and I was just like, I just feel so bad for these people. This is like, I was like, this must be what, what like, true crime podcasters feel like. Because, That's true, yeah. Because the thing about our disasters, there's no... There's negligence, 100%, in some of these. There's corruption and bad people. But, but there's never a deliberate motive. There's never torture. Yeah. Like, literally, tor- these people were tortured, not by a person. And I don't believe by God, because I, I don't believe in God, but... Uh, and, and I doubt people who do believe in God think that they were deliberately tortured. I mean, I would hope not. But I fucking hope not. Yeah. Who knows? But, but it was just by circumstances. Uh, and, and not even... I mean, nature, yes, to an extent because of, like, the cold and everything, but... And it was the remoteness of it. You know, and I, maybe that's part of it, too. It's scary that there are parts of the world that are just oh, so remote. Oh, where there's nothing. And there's so much of yeah, it. Yeah, you could fucking scream and yeah. nobody would hear you. Yeah. Nobody, it wouldn't be capable of anybody to hear you. The next person's like five miles away. And and just... There are, there are plenty of places like that on Earth. There really are. Yeah. And just the fact that... Ha- so there's um, 
45 people, and a third of them, just over a third of them, actually managed to make it out of this alive. That's astounding. Yeah. You know, I, I do think it was because they were young, they were athletic, they were, you know, they had they good had body some, mass. They had some key factors going in. Yes. You know. Yes. Yeah, but just, I mean, I don't know. I felt like, I felt really sad last night when I was researching cannibalism. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> so next week, hopefully, we'll have something a little more cheery for you. But um, I'm glad I'm glad the people who survived did survive, and I hope they have gone on to live just the best and most chill lives. I fucking hope so. Yes. I wonder if they ever got on another plane. Uh, I don't know. At I don't least even a small know. one. Yeah. Probably not. Who knows? Mm. <laughs> Be like uh, um, who was it? John Madden who wouldn't fly anywhere. He yeah, only he took, took a bus. bus. <laughs> yeah, took a fucking bus all over the place because he was afraid of flying. He's also a millionaire, so he could take a bus all over the place. Although he didn't pay for that, I'm sure that was production. Frankly, but, uh, if I were in the Uruguayan government, I would be like, you know what? You guys can live off our dime for the rest of your lives. How about that? Because it was the Uruguayan Air Force pilots. That's true. Yeah, or at least you don't have to pay. Or at least you don't have to pay taxes ever again. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. A break. <laughs> Give them a break of yeah. some sort. Yeah. Yeah. But geez, so that one's done. <laughs> Thank yeah, God. Yeah. Thankfully, actually, yeah, I'm ready to be done with it as well. And yeah, I, I think that's a perfect segue. <laughs> <laughs> to segue out of the episode. So that was another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week. What was our tagline? I forgot it. Come on. No, hold on. Kid. No, what? Mouth it to me. Know your exits. Know your exits. (laughs) (laughs) I still haven't caught on. I'll learn it for next week. Just do another take of it. No, that's all right. We should be honest. Okay. Know your exits. There you go.